Hello, and welcome back to Lower Decks, a Star Trek podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman, and I have to tell you, Valerie, that I am pretty sure that my baby is a Klingon because <laughs> he fracking loves prune juice. Uh, he also roars no a lot, way. but he loves prune juice. He loves prune juice. What? How did you discover this? Well, it turns out you're supposed to give babies prune juice. It is it is good for them to to have it, and we have been using it medicinally, essentially, uh, thinking that he probably wouldn't really like it that much, and he just loves it. It's his favorite thing. Well, <laughs> with that settled, I'm Valerie Hoagland, and I, I will say my norepinephrine levels are pretty high getting ready to talk about this episode. <laughs> um, I feel like I'm definitely in a bit of a fight or flight response uh, with what we're about to tackle here. And I think our Patreon listeners and our Lower Decks listeners just really like to do that to us with the episodes they pick. Yeah, for, for us here, well, first, maybe I should say that, hey, the episode we're doing today is the Voyager episode Memorial, which is the, the 14th episode of season six. It aired on the 2nd of February in the year 2000. But yeah, for us, it's sort of meta recording wise here, we just also recorded in the pale moonlight. So this is back to back war crimes for us. Yeah, so I guess we should give our thanks also to uh, the author of the episode, Robin Berger, um, who wrote it from a story by Brandon Braga and the director, Alan Croker. And as you alluded to earlier, Valerie, this was selected by our Patreon supporters. It came in second on one of our bi-monthly Patreon votes. Uh, the first place episode was Requiem for Methuselah. We do also want to take a moment here at the top of the show to say a huge thank you to those patrons, because uh, thanks to you, we recently hit a crowdfunding goal on Patreon. And that, in fact, is why we did In the Pale Moonlight over there for everybody. And uh, so we just want to say thank you so much for allowing us to do the show. Your support makes the show possible. Yeah, and as much as I, I did also have very high norepinephrine levels recording in the pale <laughs> moonlight, um, it it is out on, on Patreon now. I did just take a listen to our edited episode, and I think we, we handled it pretty well. I'm, I'm proud of how it came out. So thank you for encouraging us to do what we otherwise would not have done. And this is another one of them, right? This episode is... It's it's I mean, it just on the nose is about war crimes, but it is also about how we remember those crimes. And so uh, although it maybe is has put us in a dark place to be doing these two episodes back to back from our perspective, it is also really quite interesting, I think, to be seeing the ways that two different Trek shows, two different Trek creators are dealing with the issue of or the topic of war crimes and approaching it from different angles, from different perspectives. So we'll be kind of, in some sense, talking about the same thing, but talking about it very differently. And although, you know, but does put us in a dark place to do that back to back, it also probably is a good place, a good way for us to, to think about these two episodes. Yeah. And I, I we might have mentioned this on air uh, relatively recently, but um, starting a, a couple months ago, maybe I, I think just a couple months ago, um, Garrett Wang and uh, Robert McNeil, Harry Harry Kim and, and Tom Paris started a podcast where they rewatch Voyager. Like so, basically, it's the same style of episodic recap and discussion, um, but from Harry Kim and Tom Paris, and uh, they're only in season two now. But I, I kind of can't wait to to listen to our coverage and then eventually what their coverage of this episode will be. Right. Have we overlapped with them at all? I, I actually can't remember if we've done any season one or season two of, of Voyager. I think we've talked about them on some of our, our bigger sort of season-wide conversations, but I don't think we've ever done episodes of Voyager from that early. Well, we did The Caretaker, the pilot, parts one and oh, two. Um, and that was, um, you know, I 
I actually thought it was a really good episode, but my audio was so bad that I kind of run in in hidden shame from that from our from our coverage um, <laughs> because of the mic quality and the audio quality. Um, and I believe that is on our our Patreon if if anyone thinks they can suffer through the the audio. So we we did Caretaker, which they also did obviously because they're going um, chronologically. Um, so my maybe that's uh maybe that's what I'm going to do next weekend is uh, listen to our coverage of Caretaker and then listen to theirs. That would be really fun. And I'm <laughs> I'm kind of bummed that I just did a Voyager rewatch because I would love to go rewatch it and 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 follow along with them as well. That just it's so cool. They were also recently on one of the Star Trek Day panels that was on September 8th on StarTrek.com and it's clear that they it seems like they have a dynamic in real life that is very similar to Harry Kim and Tom Paris. Yeah, I mean, I never got the sense that they were acting. I always got the sense that this was a documentary about their lives, you know, Voyager. So, and we'll get, and I think we're going to get some of that here in this episode. In fact, uh, we get some of that right at the start, and maybe, maybe let's just get into it. Right, we this episode opens up in the Delta Flyer, where Tom and Harry, as well as Chakotay and Neelix, have been on an away mission for two weeks. Uh, they've been surveying planets, they've been gathering resources, uh, and it turns out that Tom and Harry, I mean, despite the good dynamic of them as characters and their actors as well, they would be really terrible, terrible roommates. But now they're back on the Voyager. There's a, a gag scene here with the, the doctor because the doctor wants to, to give all of them their physical exams, but they all just want to go take showers. And of course, something is going to turn out to be wrong with them. So this business about getting a physical is a kind of comic foreshadowing. But I just, I have to note here, Valerie, how much, like the extent to which our pandemic that we have been living through has affected my ability to suspend disbelief about these medical protocols and the way in which they are being blown off, right? We just totally wave our hands about contagions on away missions all the time by saying that the transporter filters out anything it doesn't recognize. But these dudes were on the shuttle, so they definitely should be spending two weeks in their blue underwear rubbing gel all over each other before they're allowed (laughs) anywhere near anyone else. Oh, you took everything I was going to say. I was I was like, you know, if there had been a camera on me, you would have seen me being like, <gasps> like reaching to, to like want to say something at every moment. But yes, I was thinking the exact same thing. Also, let's not forget, we've had enough episodes where the transporter doesn't filter out things that we should just know better than that. Like we should just know better with contagions um, in the Star Trek universe than we do, though. I think um, a lot of Trek and, and Voyager, I think in particular, really goes back to to episodes that you know have similar beats in other series in a way where it's like we haven't quite learned the lesson uh, but maybe that paperwork didn't make it out to the to the delta quadrant but um yeah i was really freaked out actually when i was watching it i was like no 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 everybody go get their exam and everybody rub gel um in in the weird shiny room <laughs> um like i i was really actually kind of i had a visceral anxious reaction to them blowing off the medical exam. And it wasn't funny. It wasn't funny to me. No. <laughs> well, I'm glad. You, I, I mean, I, I don't want to say I'm glad you had that response, too, uh, because I wouldn't wish that on anyone. But I am glad that I'm not alone because I really had to go back and start the episode over because I just was so distracted by this fact for like the next five or 10 minutes that I just hadn't been really paying attention to what was happening. I had to go back and start the episode over. Uh, yeah, maybe some uh, maybe some anxiety from quarantine happening here. Yeah, but I mean... It's real. It's real. I mean, they do. Nobody really gets hurt. But there's, you know, there's some psychological harm that happens as a result of them not having having their exam specifically to uh, Naomi Wildman. So 
you know, they should have done it. Yeah, let's let's get into the the plot here. And actually, I think it would be interesting to talk about how things might have gone differently if they had all just gone to sick bay for their exam right right here at the top of the show. But they're here when they get back on board. Right, Belana is waiting to greet Tom. This is actually all pretty nice. And then they get back to his quarters, and it turns out that while he's been gone, she has made a 1950s style TV for him, complete with uh, programming from the 1950s, and Tom. Loves the TV. He loves it too much, in fact. He cannot pay attention to Bellana while the TV is on. Uh, he watches the TV late into the night, even after Bellana's fallen asleep on the couch. And as we are watching him watch TV like a, a zombie, the, the program switches to something that is clearly not from the 1950s. It's, uh, it's some kind of war scene with lasers, and Tom Paris is actually there in the, the footage of this, this movie or whatever it is. He's seemingly watching footage of himself as a soldier in a war that he never participated in. And then we just go straight to the theme music from this. And and of course, right, this is going to be the plot of the episode. But what I really want to talk about here, Valerie, is beer. Tom has Bellana replicate him a beer, but she does not replicate one for herself. This is a, a detail that really jumped out to me watching the episode this time, because I love this couple. I love Tom and Bellana. They're probably my favorite Star Trek couple. But Tom's flirting, I don't think, has aged very well. Nothing about Tom Paris has aged well. I would argue that, um, well, I, there's a few things about Tom Paris's character. I think a little bit of his redemption arc. Um, and I, I think like the pilot does Tom Paris really well, actually. And the way that he comes to form a family and a friendship and is healed and what he offers Harry. I do think those things are good. But um, the actual experience of experiencing Tom Paris is never good for me. I didn't watch it when it was on air, so I, I don't know how it would have felt at the time, but uh, I might even go past hasn't aged well to say, like, is just bad. <laughs> but um, <laughs> so I don't think I'm really giving anything away to say that I don't love the Bellana and Tom pairing. And it's mostly because of my feelings about Tom um, and and this kind of like um, machismo this problematic misogyny that his character can often um, inhabit. And of course, uh, you know, we could go to the original series and talk about that for a really long time, which which we have. But um, I love that they love each other. It's just hard for me to totally get behind it because also I'm just in love with Bellana and I think she deserves better a lot of the time. But I, my experience, you know, watching the scene, because I, I didn't, I love that my brain helps edit out some details. So even when I've seen an episode a bunch of times, I don't totally remember exactly how it all goes down. And that makes the rewatch way more fun. But I spent most of this scene hoping that the way Tom was acting, like not paying attention to her, um, requesting beer and then ignoring her, um, being really ungrateful for the time and thought and energy that she put into putting this together for him. I mean, she built the whole TV. Then he just corrects her about like what a remote control, all this stuff. I really wanted it to be true that the way he behaves was part of the contagion, but it actually wasn't. And <laughs> no. that was hard to watch. Yeah, so true. I think there are several things going on here from the writing perspective of this and and that are that are jokey. I mean, one of the meta things that's happening here is that we're watching a TV show that is pointing out how TV will rot your brain and there's nothing good on TV and you shouldn't watch 
TV very much, which is actually something of a theme in the sixth season of Voyager. We we talked about this on on Patreon when we did our one of our our season Survivor uh, episodes where we pitted the sixth season of Voyager against some some other seasons of Star Trek, and we talked about Muse, which is also taking up like what's the role of dramatic entertainment, TV and and theater and so on and film in our lives. But we didn't talk about this episode at all when we did when we did that. This was just like not even on my radar for really thinking about it as being in any way important to or emblematic of the season. But it does seem like it's something that's on the mind of the the writers here. So there's that. There is also this shtick here with with where Tom we know is is pretty into the 1950s, and here he and Balana are acting out a kind of relationship that would have made sense in a 1950s sitcom. And maybe that could be funny, but it just doesn't really strike me as funny the way that it's executed here. And maybe it did when I watched this when it originally aired, but it really does just kind of seem like he's being a jerk, that his way of saying, thank you for doing this very nice thing for me while I've been gone is, hey, go get me a beer. I would have actually really liked this scene if after the line, hey, you know what you forgot, the beer, he had gotten up and gotten the beer for for both of them, gotten beers for them instead of having her go do it. Because I think it would have subverted, like it would have made it clear that that was a, all of that was a bit of a, a, a joke, right? That they were, they were role-playing a little bit for, for fun there, that they were doing a bit for each other. Whereas here it actually just feels like, no, Tom really just wants her to go get a beer. And also, even though Harry Kim literally just complained about how bad Tom's, Tom Paris smells, he hasn't taken a shower for her yet. I was going to say something really similar where the scene kind of smacks of, oh, look, they replicated a television from the 50s and they replicated a relationship from the 50s, too. <laughs> right. Like th- that's kind of really how how it happens. And it doesn't feel like it's a gimmick or a joke. It feels really reflective, actually, of their relationship. And this comes up in their relationship a lot. There are a lot of episodes about how Tom gets sucked into the holodeck Um whether it's Captain Proton um, or the car or that um, sexy uh, um, shuttle that wants to like take over his brain and kill Bellana. Um, this is actually really a point of contention in their relationship that he often becomes inattentive um, and ungrateful and that she's kind of making these bids for attention and love when, yeah, like she just this is such a sweet thing that she did and he's just treating her so badly. Yeah, and I guess I, I, you know, I remembered that all of this was in their relationship, but I thought that that was all over by season six and that season six and season seven is the story of Tom really maturing and committing to this relationship, deciding really, really what I would say is that that my memory of season six and season, season seven, Tom Paris, is that it is about Tom deciding what type of person he wants to be and, and maybe even specifically because we're talking about his relationship with Balana, what type of a man he wants to be, right? What type of a partner he wants to be in this relationship? Does he want to be a dad or not? All of that. And th- I re- remember this really speaking to me a lot, actually, when I was when I was younger. But it does seem like all of that's going to happen in like just five episodes in season seven or something like that. I thought it was much more drawn out than this. It is in my memory. But uh, we're pretty late in season six, and he's not exhibiting any of that. Though we are, are of course, just watching these totally out of order <laughs> right of course and misremembering things all the, all over Correct. the place no i think that having a character like tom 
who goes through a story arc of, hey, what kind of person do I actually want to be? What kind of man do I want to be? What kind of partner? What kind of father is really, really important. I think what's hard is that it really does not seem like that that arc for him was baked in to the show, right? It's it's you just get a lot of Tom Paris being Tom Paris. And then near the end, we get this thoughtful questioning. Um it would have been really cool to see that to play out more broadly, um, which they did in some ways, I think, with his like going from being, um, you know, a criminal to being part of the crew. They did that a little bit. Um, and he certainly has changed in a lot of ways. But yeah, I have a hard time with him. Well, now that we have spent, I don't know, like 20 minutes talking about something that was meant to be a throwaway joke to introduce the plot of the episode to us, let's uh, let's get into the, the plot here. So we, we come back from the opening titles. Tom is still watching this war on TV, but the images here, they, they transition from the TV to his memory. Uh, the reason that we know this is because they go from black and white to color. That's a pretty clever visual move, I think. And then we see that Tom is on the floor of his quarters. He's, he's dreaming this. And then we cut to Harry. Harry's in a Jeffrey's tube and he's having a similar type of hallucination. His is mostly auditory though. And then he's in sick bay where the doctor is telling him that he had an anxiety attack and that uh, he needs some time off. The doctor basically diagnoses him with having spent too much time with Neelix, which I think is a legit diagnosis. <laughs> yeah. It's going to be in the DSM six. Yeah. It'll, Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I don't know what it, what it's called, Neelix itis. I don't know. They don't let me name things, and there's a good reason for it. But uh, <laughs> I've written uh, <laughs> I've written a lot of letters saying I think I have this. Please include it. <laughs> well, speaking of Neelix, he is also going through this because he was on the away mission as well. Though he is clearly suffering from some kind of PTSD, he basically takes Naomi Wildman hostage because he wants to protect her from enemies, like uh, totally imagined enemies are not real at all. This situation is going to go on for a a while and security is going to get sent to the mess hall. But Chakotay is the one who diffuses it because he's able to play along with Neelix's hallucination because he also has been having these types of hallucinations and actually like recognizes the names of people Neelix is is talking about. Uh, And in fact, when we get Chakotay's experience, we actually get a genuine flashback to this war. Uh, A lot of this episode, we should say, is going to be flashbacks. And there is a great bit of physical acting here when Chakotay defuses this hostage situation and Neelix gives him the weapon and then they just kind of cling to each other. Uh, Ethan Phillips here, he really sells me on Neelix's trauma in this moment. It's really brilliant acting. Yeah, it's hard for me to say nice things about Neelix, but I guess I'll say nice things about Ethan Phillips. That's fine. Um, (laughs) <laughs> who um, I recently found out is like really good friends with Tim Russ and they like text all day every day. And that just is very confusing to me, given the Neelix <laughs> and Tuvok relationship. Um, I haven't fully processed that information. <laughs> but yeah, no, he actually does do a really good job with this. And actually, there are a lot of flaws in the Neelix character. But one of the things I think that um, is done really well with his character is his trauma. Right. He has a lot of trauma in his past. And that's why he has this kind of like needy neediness and attachment stuff that can be really overbearing um, and laid on thick from from my perspective. Um, but, you know, especially for him with with his his traumatic history of already what happened to his homeworld and to his family, um, and his own like guilt in his involvement of like, you know, survivor's guilt through through that all that this would hit especially hard for him. And he did act it very well. Well, obviously, the story here is going to be about our heroes figuring out what this shared hallucination is. So we might as well just get straight to it. 
the doctor discovers that these are real memories that they're having. And so now they need to see if they were abducted and maybe had their memories tampered with or something like that. And each of them remembers only a small part of this experience. And so they also have to get together and compare notes. And this is a really interesting scene because we're really just in the conference room and the four characters here are telling each other the story of their memories. They're really just trying to jog each other's memory. And that could be really boring to watch, but there is actually a lot of energy to this scene. And, and some of that is the camera movement, like very good uh, directing of the camera there. But some of it is the performances and it, it's surprisingly well done. I think the acting in this episode is quite good, though I, I do wonder how you you feel about it at, at large because it's mostly exposition, like, right? Because these characters are just explaining and like doing this like piecing together thing in the conference room for, for a significant chunk um, of the episode. And it did get a little stale for me. Like I, I, the episode wasn't quite as dynamic as I would like have liked it to be from, from a viewer perspective. Yeah, I guess that's actually what I'm trying to say is that it was pulled off way better than it should have been. Like to to have read this on the script, you would just say this is just characters telling each other what the plot of this episode is. We should be doing a little more showing than telling because this is a visual storytelling medium. And I, I think that's pretty clear what the director thought, too, because the director took some real steps to try to jazz it up, to try to energize it a little bit, both through the camera movement and through uh, maybe some coaching of the acting, though I think we should also credit the actors with some agency there and doing a good job, especially like f- with the physical acting of their locations with each other, the way that they're they're touching each other, to salvage what is otherwise just some pretty banal exposition on the page, not particularly great. Uh, storytelling, certainly not for TV, but the director and the actors, I think, really salvage this. Is uh, yeah, that was what I was trying to say. So thanks for thank you for explicating that for me. Well, what the four of them just having this exposition conversation, what the four of them put together is that they were part of a military unit that was sent to evacuate some colonists, some colonists who, who didn't want to be evacuated and and fought back, maybe and. All four of them were volunteers in this army, though they don't remember why. They do know that they weren't abducted, and that's, I think, the really important element there. And there are also some flashbacks spliced into this. It's not all just taking place in the conference room. And what we get from all of this is that there wasn't supposed to be any combat at all on this mission, but someone started firing. It's totally not clear which side or or whether the, the weapons fire was intentional. But once there was weapons fire, it turned into a battle, and really it turned into a massacre. And what we see is a group of soldiers who've been shot at once or twice, but who are also with a bunch of civilians that they're supposed to be evacuating. And everyone is panicked. The civilians begin running away from the shots, but the soldiers are under fire and they start shooting at anything that moves. It's just total chaos, but it did not have to be. That's not how this situation had to play out. And what really matters is that each of our characters is bringing a different perspective to the telling of this story. Chakotay is angry at the failure of leadership. Neelix failed to protect some children, and that is haunting him. Harry had a panic attack and ran away, but he wound up killing a pair of civilians because he thought they were going to kill him. And we know that this is all going to get resolved, and it's, it's going to turn out that our heroes are not morally culpable for this, but they feel like they are right now. And And they're feeling that individually, but they are also now having to tell their colleagues and friends that they did this. I mean, can you imagine being at this meeting where like Chakotay has to tell Janeway that, hey, while they were out searching 
nebulas for coffee. They also joined an army and massacred 82 civilians, and they don't know why or how it happened. That's some real trauma right there. Yeah, actually, really, um, no surprise here, because, you know, I I know Chakotay builds bathtubs, so I only look at him <laughs> positively now. But um, for me, Chakotay was one of the strongest um, characters in this episode, even though he doesn't get um, a lot of screen time or a lot of dialogue, precisely because um, I think he plays he plays the trauma more closed off and shut down, whereas Neelix, Harry, and Tom play it um, play play trauma in it through its hyper vigilance um, and its its high alert. And um, those are both very common responses to trauma to have your system kind of um, go very very alert, very very emotional, or to shut down completely. And I really appreciated that they gave us a character from the shutdown viewpoint it, it really balanced things out and it there was like a, a gravitas and and a different kind of meaning that i think came from chakotay and we even see that in him being like a little bit that soothing character even in the first scene with neelix you know i had not thought about that before and and actually we do see that response to the trauma of war in some of our pop culture understanding of the 1950s. So we can even think back actually to Tom and Bellana acting out this 1950s TV show as a kind of bit for us at the beginning of this episode that, that a lot of the conventional wisdom about what it was to be uh, married in the 1950s and in particular to be a wife. And I should say, by the way, I'm getting this from a handbook that I read once about how to be a wife in the 1950s. Oh, cool. um, yeah, yeah, I found it at a vintage shop when I was looking in for a, a costume for Halloween once. And I wish I had bought it. I actually really found myself wanting to, uh, I really found myself wishing I could pull that off the shelf and read it again to prep for this episode. Yeah. But a lot of it was about when your husband comes home from work, you need to not bother him and you should just leave a sandwich and a beer for him and let him be alone because work has been stressful for him and you want him to uh, be able to refresh and then engage with the family. But a lot of that is advice about middle-aged men who are working a job six, seven, eight years after they've come back from the Second World War and that going out in the world is hard for them and that they are shut down a little bit because of it right this is advice about how to deal with someone who's suffering from PTSD who is your husband and the father to your children and your family's breadwinner and and so on that's the gag that Bellana and Tom are playing out as thanks for letting me just sit here and watch TV by myself but also can you get me a beer right i mean i i think that's a really important way to look at it i also think you know, these these conduct manuals, which have a, a really long history in many forms, you know, are are problematic, <laughs> problematically, <laughs> misogynistically prescriptive, maybe would be the language for that. Um, and while I think that obviously we should we should have a lot of attention um, to PTSD and there are so many ways that it just like wasn't spoken about and wasn't addressed and help and healing and support in in real ways was not offered to you entire generations of people. Um, not not only after the Second World War, but definitely after the Vietnam War, which I think is um, what we're getting a lot of parallels to in this episode and what is probably conjured in many people's minds by this episode. Um, you know, being women lived through the war, too, in a different way. Being a caretaker at home all day is also stressful, <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, some reciprocity of support. Uh, I could have had I could have had that maybe modeled a little bit more in both the scene with Bellana and Tom and the conduct manual. <laughs> 
But I think the important thing here, um, and maybe this is where as a person with with no experience of war, um, but some experience of mental health can jump in is, you know, I can talk about trauma and post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, um, a little bit from a mental health perspective. And that'll take us back one scene, um, back to sickbay when, um, when they're finally getting examined. So before this, like, initial piecing together scene in, in the briefing room that we'll get more of as the episode goes on and it, it gets a little stagnant, as I said earlier, um, where the doctor is alerted to the PTSD because their norepinephrine levels are really high. This was my joke at the top of the episode. And, <laughs> and I am I am not a doctor or a nurse. Um, I have a very cursory understanding of the of the um, the names of chemicals and hormones and things that affect our, our mental health. But I do know that norepinephrine is involved in the fight or flight response. It's involved in this the heightened stress or danger or anxiety response. The thing that is supposed to help us if you know, there's a lion and it's going to eat us. Um, you know, it, it, it puts us into that mode where we can basically what it does is it shuts down all the systems in our body that we don't need and like boosts up the systems that we do. So your heart rate increases so that you can fight or so that you can run and have that extra energy or your glucose gets distributed differently. So you can run real fast or fight real good. Um, it shuts down, um, your, your sex systems and your hunger systems. Those get shut down because you don't need those when you are dealing with a, a acute stress or, or a big danger. So that's kind of the role of norepinephrine here. It keeps you in this high, high, high alert state, which is a very common response to trauma and a big symptom of, of PTSD. And, you know, I think maybe as we get to the end of the episode, I can talk a little bit more. I, I think if I talk all, I think if I betray too many of the criteria for PTSD, uh, I, I will give the plot of the episode away. But at this point, I can tell you that we're already seeing in the episode um, the responses to trauma that are like this heightened physiological state that often leads to hypervigilance, um, an exaggerated startle response, which we see Neelix have in the kitchen, actually, when Naomi Wildman first comes in. He has this really heightened startle response to her coming in. He's, he's like very distressed um, and taken aback. Um, difficulty concentrating, difficulty sleeping, angry outbursts. Um, and then in particular, based on what you just said about the briefing room, um, PTSD often comes with persistent and distorted cognitions about the cause or consequences of the trauma, which often leads people to to blame themselves or others. Um, so that's exactly what we are seeing play out with these characters in the briefing room is they're getting into these little mini arguments. This happened. No, this happened. No, I did this. No, I'm horrible. No, you're horrible. No, they're horrible. It's this it is literally like I read that out of the DSM, persistent distorted cognitions about the cause or consequences of the traumatic events that lead the individual to blame himself or others on the nose for what's happening already in this episode. And, and this next scene is going to give us a number of other things that are on the list you just gave us, because what is happening now, the Voyager is going to retrace the away mission steps so that they can try to figure out what happened, right? Whatever happened and where it happened and who did it and so on. But the next scene that we actually get is a, a Tom Paris scene, right? Uh, he's alone in his quarters. He's dealing with this trauma. And Balana comes in and wants to, uh, to comfort him or to distract him. She wants to let him know that she is there and that she cares. But Tom does not want that. He tells her that, but she insists. And, and the conversation escalates until Tom is just 
yelling at her and, and she goes away. It's a short scene, but there there's a lot to say here. I mean, at first, it's just that this keeps happening to them. We talked about this earlier, that people keep messing with Tom's mind and he gets scary and yells at Milana. Right? I'm thinking of Alice. That was the episode with the, the Nero link with the weird shuttle, right? We did that on Patreon a while back. But I also do want to get your perspective here, Valerie, your perspective as a ship's counselor, because Tom is obviously not doing well. And Valana loves him and wants to help in some way. This is probably not the best way to go about doing that. What do you think she should have done here? Like, what is the approach that a partner should be taking to someone in Tom's position here? Oh my gosh! Yeah, that's extremely. What a question! <laughs> I did not. <laughs> also, let me. <laughs> I did not expect that question. Um, <laughs> well, let me first say, just to be clear, you are not dispensing actual medical advice <laughs> to anyone here. You are just talking to me about this scene. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it depends on so many factors, right? Like, um, it depends on um, is there violence in the relationship? It depends on each individual's commitment to the relationship and desire to to put in that support and lots of other factors. Um, I, I will say that angry outbursts and irritable behavior that are often expressed as like um, physical aggression or verbal aggression um, towards either people or things actually is, is again, another one of the symptoms of that really heightened state of arousal that um, that trauma um, can put you in or does put you in. Um, and And so that's playing out directly here. And when people are in this state, um, which is sometimes referred to as a state of diffuse physiological or physical arousal, um, really the research that we have right now shows that um, what they need to do is just calm down, right? You don't walk up to a person and say, calm down. But um, ideally, Tom would have some coping skills to get himself out of this this state of arousal because it can take about 20 minutes of of kind of – returning your blood flow and your oxygen levels and your systems to normal. Um, sometimes this is called emotional flooding, right? You're just totally flooded emotionally by what's happening. And you you need some time and space to calm down before you can engage rationally or thoughtfully or lovingly with someone. So the fact that she leaves, like, doesn't really escalate it and leaves is actually really one of the only choices she had, given how he was feeling in that moment. Um, he really just need needed to take the time to 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 settle down in his own nervous system. Though, of course, what I would actually fully recommend is that, you know, somebody go to a therapist and get diagnosed with PTSD and learn those coping skills. And then the couple has language to talk about what's happening when it's happening. Those are the things I would actually recommend. <laughs> right. We were just doing a bit when we did in the Pale Moonlight about how the only ship, the only crew that we ever get in Star Trek that actually has a counselor is the one that doesn't need it. It's the TNG crew where like these sorts of things just don't really seem to to happen. No one has to confess doing, you know, committing war crimes and all of that sort of thing. But it actually occurred to me while watching this episode that maybe the reason that the Enterprise D seems like it doesn't need a ship's counselor is because they have one. And Deanna Troy's pretty good at her job. Yeah, that's a hot take. Yeah, that's, a, that's <laughs> yeah. actually a, a really great point. Maybe we don't get these episodes of like totally uh, rampant um, mental health struggles because there is a counselor there and people are in- actively <laughs> encouraged to go and see her. Well, yeah, at this point, the uh, other people on Voyager start having some of these memories as well. So it does seem likely that this is actually just some kind of shared hallucination and not a a real memory, even though that's what the doctor has has diagnosed it as, is seen that there, there's a physiological 
imprint in their brain uh, of this memory. And Janeway gets a really distressing flashback of the immediate aftermath of this massacre when the the CO, the commanding officer, is trying to hide the evidence of what happened. He's he's vaporizing the bodies of the civilians so that he can just report back to his superiors that when they showed up to evacuate these civilians, they were already gone. This is obviously not okay, right? This is morally wrong. But I do want to say that the the CO character is himself clearly afraid. Uh, When we saw him in Chakotay's flashback, he he just wanted to evacuate the civilians, be done with his mission. And what he seemed really to be concerned about was getting it done on time. Like what he's really focused on is pleasing his superiors and, and advancing his career. Like he's wanting to get a promotion. And here in this scene, then, he seems afraid of being punished for something that was an accident, something that he didn't order, right? It's, it's, we're seeing that he is also panicked, right? He's not evil. He's panicked. There's a lot of nuance here that I really appreciate about this scene. Yeah, again, one of the details that I didn't quite remember and that the episode kind of tricked me with is when we get the flashbacks, particularly to when the characters are like, let's see, the flashback that goes to when the characters are flashing back in the flashback to the CEO telling them what to do. (laughs) Um, Hard to find language for that. Um, I actually had a suspicion that like, oh, what's going to happen here is that they were planning to kill these civilians all along, but they're just telling everybody that it's it's just a simple evacuation thing um, to get them to go along with it. And this is a trick and the people in command knew it. And... um, it that's not what happened, right? Like this is a very complex incident where nobody knows what happened and everybody is reacting to that lack of knowledge and the trauma of what happened and what they have done in a different way, right? He's he's going down this, the CEO is going down the self-protective mechanism um, as a response to this, you know, probably a belief that he's holding in that moment of like, oh my God, I did this horrible thing. I'm a bad person. I can't, people can't find out. We didn't mean to, right? This this guilt um, response. Uh, but it really just points to the complexity of the event that nobody knows what happened. Something just went really wrong and then a bunch of people died as a result. Yeah, and we're, and we're going to want to pay attention to that detail when we get to the and thinking about thinking about this as an event that ought to be remembered, wondering why and 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 how it ought to be remembered. But you're right to point to the way that this is all given to us in a way that foreshadows evil motives. I mean, it doesn't help that this actor, whose, whose name I did not look up, but this actor is D-list Ed Harris with like resting jerk face. So he just looks evil. I mean, he's a handsome man, but he also just exudes villainy yeah. on the screen. He had some strong Cardassian vibes, for sure. <laughs> oh, yeah. He's got kind of a long neck. Yeah. So, yeah, that's what... Wow. Good good eye, Hoagland. Good eye. <laughs> <laughs> well, we get, a, we get a quiet scene now between Neelix and Seven. Neelix rather bluntly asks Seven how she deals with the fact that as a Borg, she basically committed war crimes as frequently as possible. Um, he asks her, do you ever feel shame about what you did? And uh, and then he says, how do you keep going, knowing that you've done such horrible things? And Seven says that she does feel shame. She also feels remorse. But she says that these feelings help prevent her from committing more atrocities, that, that guilt is a useful emotion. That's, that's literally what she says. And I can't 
help but feel that Seven is maybe not being completely honest here, right? This is a pretty Borg thing to say, to, to talk about emotions based on their utility. It does seem to help Neelix here, I guess. It gives him some comfort, but I am skeptical of this. Which part are you skeptical of? I'm skeptical that this is actually Seven's experience of these memories. In fact, this really could be a totally different story about the same thing, about Seven of Nine remembering, assimilating people. In fact, Voyager does do that episode and her dealing with it. So I'm skeptical that she's being honest with Neelix here about what her feelings actually are and, and what her what it is actually like to carry that around with her. Her experience of having her body taken over by someone else and used to do horrible things. But also, I, I guess I'm bouncing off the implication here that if Seven didn't feel this guilt and remorse, if she hadn't had this experience to feel guilty and remorseful about, she might just commit atrocities because she wouldn't know that it's bad to commit atrocities. Right. Okay. Yeah, that's fair. And it sounds like you're thinking maybe that it's actually harder on Seven than she's betraying. That's right. Yeah. I I think that's certainly true. I mean, this is a moment where Seven is talking about something in a calm and collected way that affects her emotionally and cognitively all day, every day, I'm sure. And we definitely see that as part of her story arc, her, her kind of grappling with what she the cultural conditioning that she received from the Borg of like seeking perfection, but also then her own trauma, not only of being assimilated, but then what she did while she was assimilated. And I find it actually pretty easy to believe that somebody who experiences something like that all the time could talk about it briefly in an unemotional way, um, especially when you're living with that that trauma like every day um, and you're trying to comfort a friend. So I actually thought this was one of my favorite scenes in, in the episode, and I was really on board with it. I talk a lot um, in my work about the difference between guilt and shame. And as with most things, when we talk to other humans, we get a bit reductive, right? Especially when we only have 45 minutes um, (laughs) to talk to them. But I like to think of like shame as a pretty useless thing, right? Like shame just makes you feel bad. Um, And shame is this idea that like, I am bad. Something is wrong with me. I am wrong. Um, and culturally, like shame is induced in, in a lot of ways um, that are really oppressive, whereas guilt is I did something bad. I did something that was misaligned with my values, and that does not feel good. Guilt often leads to shame, right? I did something bad often leads to therefore I am bad in a lot of people's minds. But I I like to think of shame as a really dangerous and kind of unhelpful emotion, even though it's very common. And guilt, I do think, can be helpful, right? To have a mechanism where when we behave out of line with our values and we realize that we caused harm, to have a mechanism for saying, ooh, that didn't feel good. I don't want to do that again. So I actually thought that that this scene was really well done and well written um, and well reasoned such that I could get on board However, you you brought up this this other element, which is like, is this what she needed to not cause atrocities, right? And I, I would say, this is a hard thing to say, but I would say yes, because she's Borg, right? Like, she needs to hold on to her guilt, not to slip back into her conditioning where she thought assimilating people was totally fine in pursuit of perfection. It's not like she came out of the womb needing wanting to commit atrocities and then had to go through that experience and feel guilty not to do it. It's more that like she has this within her for a variety of reasons that are out of her control 
Um, she didn't ask to be assimilated. She didn't ask for that cultural conditioning, but it is a part of her that she might somehow be inclined towards. And the guilt helps her remember that that's not who she is, that that's misaligned with her values, that she doesn't want to do that. Yeah, you do a lot to explicate this scene for me because I I was maybe taking Seven's words a little too literally that I, I was thinking that what she's talking about is if I hadn't committed war crimes, I wouldn't know that committing war crimes is bad and I would be committing war crimes. But I think what you're pointing out is that what Seven really is saying is that the Borg taught me and conditioned me to treat individuals and even actually whole groups as expendable if expending them furthers the goals that I have and that the Borg have. And if I came out of being a Borg, if I were deborgified and didn't feel guilt or remorse about the things I did to people as a Borg, I would probably still think that it's okay to treat people expendably if they get in the way of my goal, whatever that goal may be. I, I think that's you're right. That's what she's trying to say. And I'm glad you Clear that up for me. Yeah, excellent, excellent summary. That was really, really well put. That was my my reading of the scene, and it's a horrible thing. People who have lived through trauma, who have experienced trauma, you do learn a lot from it. You do take a lot of lessons from it. Um, you do become stronger. You do become more resilient. Um, you do notice when things are misaligned with your values. But that doesn't mean that everyone needs to experience trauma in order to learn those things, right? It's always such a hard line to walk to say, okay, well, trauma happened and we have to, we can't make it unhappen. So it's, it's a part of you now. It's a part of us now. Um, I haven't experienced war trauma in my life, but I have experienced trauma and, and how is that serving me and how can I carry it forward and incorporate it into myself? Though ideally we don't experience trauma at all and just teach each other goodness in other ways, right? Like it's not the only way we learn these lessons. It's not the only way a person would know not to commit war crimes. Right. I, ideally, although the premise of this story, we're going to get the conclusion here in a minute, and we're going to see that the premise of the story might actually be that that's not true. The premise of the story <laughs> might fair. be the only way we know not to commit war crimes is to have committed at least one and feel bad about it. But uh, uh, we're getting ahead of ourselves there a little bit. Let's let's get to the, the planet. They have figured out which planet they visited is the one that they're remembering here. Voyager goes there. Tuvok thinks this is a bad idea, by the way. He is convinced that all of this is just a hallucination. But Janeway wants to make sure that they really didn't all commit a war crime. Uh, Tuvok here says she's motivated by guilt. Guilt is the word that he uses. And, and he characterizes it as guilt about something that she didn't even do, which is interesting. But I actually think that Janeway here, at least the way Kate Mulgrew is playing this scene, I thought Janeway was motivated by anger and not by guilt. I, I wonder what your sense of Janeway's motivation here was. Well, it's an I actually think this is a really rich um question that that the episode poses because part of Tuvok's argument isn't just like you're being motivated by guilt and, you know, we should just get out of here. It's that the closer we get to the planet, the more of our crew is going to be potentially affected by this and the more intense the effects we're already experiencing are going to get, you are putting the entire crew through wartime trauma in order to figure out this little mystery. And is that worth it? Well, and, and Tuvok, I think, 
does have a point. We we have raised some of these issues before about Janeway's decision making. I mean, certainly for the story and as an audience member, I want them to keep going because I want to see the resolution of this. I want to know what the solution to the mystery is. But from a command perspective, I think that Janeway's first duty here is to protect her people not to just double check that they weren't physically abducted and actually did this thing that can't be undone or corrected, and certainly not to go chasing vengeance against someone she thinks may have abducted them or or mind-controlled them, mind-raped them, I, I guess, in some way, that Tuvok is right to point out that the thing to do to prevent some of the crew from experiencing this at all and to prevent those who are experiencing it from experiencing it more intensely is to nope out of here. I think Tuvok is right. I, I think Janeway ought to have noped out of this situation. What, what do you think? I mean, I, I think that exposing people against their will to what will become complex post-traumatic stress <laughs> disorder is horrible. I mean, these there are lifelong consequences of this. Like trauma never fully leaves the body. Like it fu- never fully leaves. There's ways to, you know, reintegrate it. And to, uh, there are a lot of things now to, to provide relief to people, but like, this isn't some small potatoes situation where everybody's going to get like a little sick with the flu and then they'll clear them after. Um, this is now the rest of their lives. And we, I think we also have to add in the context that this is a crew that is probably already experiencing complex trauma because they're stuck 70,000 light years on a ship away from home. Right. Um, Which is its own daily trauma that they are, that they are already living after all the trauma of the caretaker and everything else that's happened in the last six seasons. So this is a pretty weighty decision that she is making. So I do think that what ends up happening in the story is beautiful and necessary. Um, in some way that there's an argument for that. But I think taking the entire ship there is that she's not taking that with enough seriousness. To me, the solution could have been that she asks if the people on the original away mission and maybe seven or maybe the doctor would volunteer to go back and check it out. Like, does the entire ship need to go? Probably not. Um, the people who have already been exposed to this and then some people who don't seem affected by it. Seven doesn't seem to be affected by it. Uh, The doctors certainly wouldn't be affected by it. They can go and help solve the problem. And I think what they end up doing in the episode could have totally happened with just those people. I don't think they needed the entire ship. You're absolutely right, because these are the only people, and in fact, not even that full list of people are are who we actually see down on the planet anyway. Maybe we can just assume that that's actually the choice that she made. It may may have been in a scene that either didn't get filmed or got deleted. Yeah, listening to you characterize this more professionally than I did, I just keep thinking about what a job... Deanna Troy is going to have when the Voyager crew gets home. Like she, she's going to have to counsel all of them because she is obviously the best counselor in Starfleet, if not the entire Federation. It's going to be a lot of work. These, it's not going to be easy for these people to go home again. I like how in your imagination, just because like she's the only counselor we've really ever had in Star Trek, that she's actually the only counselor. Um, I mean, we've had Cornwell, who's a who's a psychiatrist, but um, yeah. <laughs> Poor Deanna. Um, but but no, I, I think it's actually, it's built, you see in sickbay that as they get closer to the planet, Janeway says, I want to go look at the planet. And the closer they get, the more people come into sickbay experiencing symptoms of PTSD. So she she did this. This is not an off, off-camera thing. Um, she exposed her entire crew to this really acute trauma. Um, 
that will forever change their lives. So I actually, I think it was a, I think that her motivation um, was pure and meaningful. I think the way she went about it was really cruel, actually. It's the exact same thing we said when we did The Caretaker, right? Janeway has not changed, it turns out. Every time she's faced with these types of choices, uh, she doesn't seem to put her crew first, at least not in the episodes we keep doing, which is uh, is interesting. I mean, I think it's always valuable to talk about you know, the command, the leadership decisions that, that uh, our Star Trek characters are making. But uh, yeah, we disagree with this one. Well, let's get to the planet now. They're, they're here, but no one else is here, and no one else has been here for centuries. What they find is a memorial. It's this massive structure with an inscription that vaguely, I mean, really vaguely commemorates this massacre. What it really does is send out some kind of signal that forces people nearby to relive this experience. And the inscription here says that the memorial exists so that this type of thing won't happen again. But as we've been pointing out, the the Voyager crew largely feel victimized by this. They've been forced to endure horrible trauma for something that they didn't do, uh, just to be given a moral lesson that they don't need, right? We know that as Starfleet officers, they do not need this moral lesson. And so Chakotay and just about everyone else wants to shut this thing down so that others won't be victimized by it. But Neelix and Janeway have a different take on this. They want to repair the monument. They want to repair it so it will keep running forever. Neelix is actually quite upset during this argument. He makes a really passionate defense for keeping the memorial running. And he repeats some of the sentiments that Seven said to him about guilt and how we go about learning not to commit war crimes. But, you know, to be fair, Janeway does see the other side of the argument. So they are going to repair it. But they are also going to deploy a warning buoy in this system that will let people know what's going to happen if they come any further into this star system. But it is a really interesting argument. It's a really interesting problem, right? We don't have this technology. But if we did, is this something that we should actually be doing with our memorials? Like, for example, should the Holocaust Museum be forcing people generations later to live through the trauma of being at Auschwitz, for example? Is this... Is this what memorials are for? I mean, we're going to spend some time on on this question, um, and and I will answer you. But I wanted to to talk a little bit about something else before before I did. Now that we've gotten to the episode's close and we've we've seen the mechanism by which um, ev- the crew is being affected, and something that was really striking to me actually when I returned to the DSM to look um, again at PTSD um, for this episode. Um, and if there's any mental health nerds, actually what the crew is experiencing is acute stress disorder because that's just PTSD, you know, in its early stages, like when it's like a couple days or or a month or so from the trauma. And then if it continues, it becomes PTSD. But um, I thought I would read uh, a little bit about what what the current DSM says counts as as trauma exposure. Um, and it's exposure to actual or threatened things, death, injury, sexual violence. Uh, and so that counts as either directly experiencing the event, witnessing the event, learning that the event occurred to someone close to you, um, or experiencing repeated or extreme exposure to the details of that event. So it's really interesting to think that the DSM that we have now actually includes the scenario that happens in this episode <laughs> of Voyager where, you know, 
you can think of their memories, because um, one thing we haven't said is, right, these intrusive um, memories of, of the trauma, often called flashbacks, or they can be dreams and other things as well, um, that we see that's definitely a part of PTSD, but that you don't actually have to have directly experience the trauma to have PTSD. Um, so this is actually a really amazing conception of the whole thing as we get it in this story. And, you know, because we're talking about time, times, um, times past, and we we're talking about World War II, um, and you even brought it up again with the Holocaust, I actually don't know the history of how PTSD has, has been conceived of or changed um, in in the, the medical or the psychological world, that would be really interesting. You know, even just thinking of like the generations of people that used the term shell-shocked instead of PTSD and, and had how little understanding we had, which is maybe how we got part of how we got to those conduct manuals about getting your husband a sandwich. Um, <laughs> it, it would be really interesting to look at the history of, of how of how all of that was conceived. Um, but, you know, to go back to to your question about the memorial, uh, what is so, I think it is kind of cool when Trek offers us these questions that don't have easy answers, right? That's what encourages us to keep thinking about them. And you gave the Holocaust example, but um, something that also came to mind for me was, you know, the experience of being black in this country and like a memorial, maybe that made you experience what it was like to be an enslaved person or what it was like to, um, to be a black person living under segregation. Um, you know, would those be valuable things? Because you, you said when you were kind of summarizing it for the Voyager crew and Neelix and talking about Neelix's position, that there's this idea of, does this crew need it? Right. This ship of people, this is Starfleet. They, well, not that, not that there are war crimes committed by Starfleet, which we just <laughs> talked about uh, on Deep Space Nine. But like, this is a group of people that doesn't necessarily maybe need that lesson. But I think that it can be argued that a lot of ways in our contemporary society right now, we need those lessons still. Um, and when building a memorial, like, how do you take that into account? It feels weird to be arguing the side of like, I could see a really meaningful purpose to this because it's also such a cruel and traumatic thing to do to people, especially uh, unwarned and unwanted. But it's really complex. It is complex. And in fact, I, you, you've, you've brought us into another part of this I want to talk about. So I, I actually want to parse this and just sort of clearly be splitting this into two different conversations or two different parts anyway, two different halves of the conversation, because I do want to talk about who this memorial is commemorating and and how and why. But I do also want to talk about the, the sci-fi element of it first, this really sense that you can, you, you know, these people have the technology here to impart actual trauma that, as you said, will even have a physical manifestation in these people forever. They have the technology to impart that on people. Should we be doing that? Is that a good idea? Even if we say, yes, people should know about this horrible thing that happened in the past for a variety of reasons, should we actually give them this lived experience that is going to stick with them in these these ways that are going to be potentially anyway harmful to them? Uh, and in fact, even just thinking about like, you know, we are talking about war crimes here, but oh, Thinking about the way uh, I'm thinking here, even of about cycles of abuse that are trauma perpetuating itself. Are we wanting to inflict trauma on other people, hoping that it will make them not 
continue a cycle of, of violence? I mean, isn't there every chance that this will actually really damage people psychologically such that, in fact, the opposite effect will happen or the opposite intention, the opposite intended effect will happen? That is a excellent Excellent point, Glenn. I'm so glad that you brought it up. And I'm a little bit I feel like I wish I had thought of it, um, because it's extremely relevant here, is that you're right, trauma can, can and often does perpetuate itself when it goes unsupported on on ununderstood, un- un- which is totally a word um, that I just made up right now. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and cause much more harm. And we can look at this through the lens of all of the research there is on intergenerational trauma and epigenetics, this idea that, you know, your, um, your ancestors who experienced trauma, who experienced stress, there's actually a change to your DNA sequence that happens where like a, a stress response gets turned on and that gets genetically passed down through generations. So intergenerational trauma is not just a cultural thing. Um, it's also um, a, a genetic thing, an actual physical physiological thing. And it causes a lot of harm and it and it puts a lot of burden on on the generation that is you know, starting to try to seek to, to heal from that. Um, and and I think that now that you have, have brought that perspective into this, I, I definitely think we probably shouldn't be doing this to people <laughs> um, and that we maybe need to find other ways of doing it. But it's, it you know, when harm has been caused to this degree and the lessons of that harm have not been incorporated into the society that perpetrated those harms, you can see how you would, this is a compelling argument to want to ask people to relive this, to gain empathy, right? Like I think in in practice um, there are a lot of moral problems with it, but it's, but I still am drawn to it as, as an idea, like the, the spirit of it and what its function could be. The other thing here, though, that I think is is kind of maybe this is where you were going to go with your your second part of the split is that, you know, you gave the example of the Holocaust and I gave the I- example of, of racism and anti-blackness and slavery. Um, that's not what happened at this thing. Right. Even right. if we take the example of, of the Vietnam War, right, that um, is part of this episode as well. This was an accident where people panicked. This doesn't seem to be like the consequence of intentional oppression. Right. This is exactly where I wanted to go next with this, though. My, my mind is is racing in several different directions here. I'm actually really so glad we're having this conversation. You were pointing out earlier the way that there is this menace that is built up, and then it turns out that there is not actually any menace, but there's a, a colonialism that seems to be coded here in the episode that then doesn't actually manifest. But we don't really ever actually find out why these soldiers are here. What is their relationship with the civilians? Are they in some sort of political community together? Are they even the same species? And what is it that the people are being evacuated for and to where? We are told it's temporary, that they'll be back in a few months, but we don't really know what the relationship is. These might actually be a subject people who are oppressed. These might actually be space imperialists who are evacuating some subject people, perhaps out of some kind of uh, patriarchal benevolence, but but you know, patriarchal nonetheless, right? That could be going on, and it seems to be coded here. And so although this particular incident 
is an accident. It might be wrapped up in some much bigger context that the the people who made this monument, the people who made this memorial have that we don't have. That's an interesting aspect of the show where I think that although that the 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 ideas of the show, the point of the show, the moral lesson of the show would have been served by a little more world building. But the other thing I want to do is to point out that I was specifically vague about the way I was thinking about the Holocaust Museum. And I just said, should the Holocaust Museum be forcing people generations later to live through the trauma of being at Auschwitz? And then you you came up with another example that's a great example of the way that Africans, the way that, that Black people have been oppressed in various forms in the United States of America or North America, even before it was the United States of uh, America for centuries, right? Two and a half centuries of, of being enslaved, a century under Jim Crow. But what I want to point out is that you gravitated towards seeing the memorial as commemorating the experiences of the oppressed and the victimized. But that is not what this memorial is doing at all. We don't know the names of a single person who died, a single civilian who died, the 82 civilians who died here, we don't know a single name. We don't get one in the flashbacks, not written, inscribed on the monument at all. This memorial, as, as far as I can tell, is, is commemorating. And that word, by the way, literally means remembering together. It means sharing a memory. This memorial tells people the story of the soldiers who committed the massacre, and that's it. It is not the story of the people who actually died here. And that is a strange strange choice. It would actually be like going to a museum that's meant to educate people about the history of slavery in America, and all the exhibits are about the slave owners. I had not thought about that. I had not realized that that is what the memorial is doing. I think you spoke um, very clearly, and I'm glad you brought it up, that that the colonialism is coded into the episode, but then seems to get dropped. Um, and maybe that's where I was like reading a lot of this this context from. But, you know, memorials are like this, right? Memorials tell one side of the story of an atrocity. Even if we look at the Vietnam War Memorial, um, and certainly American soldiers were extremely traumatized by that experience. Um, and there was a lot of harm caused there. It's it's the American soldiers, right? It's not everybody. It's not the Vietnamese who were uh, also traumatized and suffered huge amounts of casualties um, and harm, even, you know, before um, and certainly after Americans were involved in the war. Yet that memorial that we have in our country tells our story. And um, when when I was in college, I had the opportunity to was thinking about this experience a lot, actually, as I was watching this episode, I had the opportunity to go with a class to Vietnam for a semester, do a study abroad. And and the professor was specifically an expert in, in commemorations and memorials and remembering um, and was particularly interested in in how um, how the the, you know, the French and American wars um, are commemorated or remembered collectively in Vietnam. And I had this experience as a young person of of one realizing that they're called the French and American Wars, which is just already such a different perspective than it being called the Vietnam War, um, right? Who's telling the story, but also going to memorials and monuments that that were about Vietnamese victories or Vietnamese losses and just 
how jarring of a perspective change that was from the culture that that I grew up in here in America. And so even our memorials today don't fully inhabit the the complexity of experience or like properly always balance um, who was oppressed, who was oppressing, who was harmed. It's not something that we've fully worked out even now. Yeah, I have a lot to to say about this. I'm going to try to curtail myself here because, you know, we don't talk about this very much, certainly not on the air, but an entire chapter of my PhD dissertation is about war memorials uh, during the fall of the Roman Empire, the way that communities are remembering their experience or really experiences of war, remembering them, commemorating them sometimes generations, even centuries later, the way that they get put into uh, public ceremonials that continue for generations and generations. It is a huge interest of mine, which is perhaps why I have really glommed on to this memorial as a memorial as well. And absolutely, when we are building memorials for our communities, we're remembering the experience of events the way that they happen to our to our communities. And what's, I think, really fascinating about the Vietnam memorial, the Vietnam War memorial, is that what's implicit in the way that we have done that memorial, which is a very beautiful memorial— the, just this black wall with the list of every name, every American uh, casualty listed on it. What we are doing implicitly with that memorial is treating American soldiers who died in the war, and really by extension, everyone who went as victims of our politicians. That's what we're commemorating there. We are commemorating victims. So that does make me wonder then, the people who put this memorial up here in in space do are they thinking of these soldiers who committed this massacre also as victims in some way certainly the individual stories we're seeing are all about people who do feel bad about what they what they did and wish they could undo it so they are are they are they do seem to be treated they do seem to be being treated as victims here, but because we don't get any context of this, again, it's hard to understand that. And I think also something, you know, that that was increasing my norepinephrine levels while going into this episode is that um, I can give these intellectual takes, right? Um, I can talk about my experiences that study abroad and, and studying commemoration. I can talk about, you know, my experiences going to D.C. and and moving physically through war memorials. I can talk about, um, you know, trauma as diagnosis and lived experience in a mental health way. But I have never been um, in a culture where war was, um, you know, in my home, basically, like really, really close to me. Um, I have never experienced war directly. And, and I was never, you know, um, I didn't fight in any wars or involved in them in, in, in an active um, individual way. And that makes this stuff really hard to talk about. So I wanted to acknowledge that I don't have that experience and offer for you, Glenn, if you wanted to speak about how this episode affected you as a person who has had those experiences. Yeah, I, I mean, maybe obliquely, I will talk about that a little bit and really maybe address something that was implicit in, in what you're describing about our culture, right? The America that you and I live in is that we really hide our military history. We we brush it, un, we, we sweep it under rugs. Uh, we bring it out, you know, in election season and uh, have some, some, you know, patriotic 
jingoism and supporting the troops and all of that. But we don't actually like to openly and specifically remember battles, wars, the people who waged them, why they waged them, what the purpose of them was. We have holidays like Memorial Day, for example, that are about commemorating fallen soldiers. And and I'm using soldiers there to mean anyone in the military service, though technically I suppose it does only mean people in the army. Uh, but to remember but to remember people who who died in 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 wars uh, but we don't really treat it that way you can go to dc you might be able to go to some other big cities and have a memorial day parade where veterans of wars are participating and someone's giving a speech of course it'll be a politician but that's really about it. It's not really a day that we take off work very often. It's not a day that we commemorate with some with real solemnity. There's no reflection about war as an experience, what it's for, whether or not we really want to keep doing it, uh, even to think about our our people, our our American soldiers, Marines, sailors, airmen. Are they actually at war right now? And I, I say that because my students tend to not know that we're at war and have been their whole life. They tend to not know that. That's not what we do on Memorial Day. On Memorial Day, we have car sales. And I think that's a real disservice, right? Where we just erase our past and don't learn anything from it, right? And that's the whole message of this episode is we really need to make a point of remembering these things. And and so maybe to circle back around to the sci-fi element of this and thinking about, should we impose this trauma on people? Maybe this is the only way that the, the people who built this monument, maybe this is the only way that they think they can get people to really pay attention to their past, is to make them experience it. Because if all we're going to get are holidays and parades, maybe we can be good about taking that seriously for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. But eventually it's just going to be car sales and barbecues and we'll forget the meaning behind it and the reason for any of it but if we can if we can impose that on people if we can make them directly experience it then we will never forget yeah, there might it might be something to that you're very right to point out that there was something that i was um kind of uh talking around a little bit which is the fact that we are at war right we we are a country involved in wars in this very moment so it's not just the past it's also the present and what i was trying to do with my language was was acknowledge that that is a truth but also acknowledge the simultaneous truth that that war has not affected me personally right it's a far away war that even in the present i have the privilege not to have to think about or uh feel affected by um which I think brings us back to this argument of like, ought we to be affected, right? Right. And and I guess I, I do think that we ought to be affected. I don't think we all need to be traumatized. So so where where that line is, I don't know. I do suspect this technology is not a good thing to be using. But but there are ways that we can we can affect people where we can remember we can remember episodes in our collective, our communal past with the the solemnity that they they deserve and and to learn the moral lessons that we ought to learn from them, whatever these things might be, we can do that without necessarily having to traumatize people. It does actually, in some ways, kind of seem like Star Trek is showing us here maybe that it's only uh, you know that there are only extremes on this spectrum, but I don't think that's true. I think we can find we can find some place that is that can affect people without traumatizing them. And, and, and I wish we did talk about these things as a community, as a, as a country, as people more frequently. So I do appreciate this episode a lot for doing that for us. 
on that note, we're we're gonna we're gonna wrap this episode up. One of the things, of course, right, that we normally do at the end of an episode is we invent a cocktail about this episode. We are not gonna do that this time because this is not that kind of commemoration, right? That's that's not what this episode is about. This episode is not about making a, a, a drink and uh, and and joking about the themes of the episode. It's the exact opposite of that. Uh, but we are going to have a cocktail commemorating James Doohan's military service when we get. Scotty on the uh, the Enterprise D in the TNG episode Relics, which we're going to do in a few months. So we'll we'll uh, we'll call back to this episode when we we do that. I think that's going to be April. So no cocktail this time, and so that is going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Valerie Hoagland. You're, uh, I guess it's slowly becoming like I'm teaching a class on the, on diagnostics through <laughs> through Clay Temple Media. If anybody is listening to everything on our Patreon and everything on the main lower text feed, they're they're slowly getting that education from me. Um, but this was um, this was a, a difficult episode to watch, a difficult episode to cover, and and as always. Um, I feel like I have learned a lot and had my experience enriched by talking to you about it. So thank you, Glenn. And as always, thank you listeners for making us do the hard thing that ultimately <laughs> brought, uh, brought, brought some good and necessary conversation. Yeah, I think I, I was just about to say, yeah, I enjoyed this as well. And I, you struggled, you almost said it as well and then stopped and thought better of it because maybe joy is not the right word, but I am glad we had this conversation. So yeah, thank you, Valerie. And thank you to our listeners for for doing this. Next month, though, we, we, we are getting a reprieve from war crimes. We're just going to be talking about the episode that's the uh, crossover between Deep Space Nine and The Princess Bride. It's the one with uh, Humperdinck. It's uh, <laughs> the episode Rivals. Uh, hopefully that's going to be a much lighter episode <laughs> to watch and for us to, to record as well. But uh, this was a great episode to discuss. We talked about a lot of, of things, and I would love to continue talking about it with listeners. So I do hope you'll come to our, our forum or come over to our subreddit called Clay Temple Media. And if you do want to hear us talking more about war crimes and you're not already on Patreon, you can join us there to check out our coverage of In the Pale Moonlight as well. Which did get a cocktail, a delicious one, I'll say. Yeah, that war crime did get a cocktail, <laughs> but this one does not. <laughs> yeah, we're remarkably inconsistent, and you're welcome. Um, <laughs> until next time, stay spacey.